get a start now and uh, uh, see how much ground we can plow tonight. Okay, let me see here. Paul, would you open us in prayer this evening? Sure. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can learn and study your word. We pray you bless the speaker, Lord, and that we can all grow more and more tonight, Lord Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, all reminder to those out there in internet land, um, the chat function is still down, uh, but you can ask questions through the messages feature on the, uh, on the, uh, on the, on the uh, church website here, uh, what's it, church center. And uh, so you're welcome to do that. I know I haven't gotten any yet, but uh, just leave it out there that you're welcome to ask a question. Might be a little clunky, but uh, I'll try and keep an eye out make sure that I get those questions. Okay, so last week we were talking about death and the journey uh, that we take uh, from this life into the next. And uh, tell me, how did people tend to view death in the scriptures? Well, in the Old Testament, they really were kind of muddy about it. Right, a uh, good, good way to put it. Yeah, they, they, now they did know that there it was a place of rest, but a lot, of, lot of question marks. Okay. We will be starting on page ten tonight, but we're sort of doing a little review right now. But we'll be starting on page ten. Yeah, so they get new revelation. Now, there's, there's a question that we're going to have to address tonight. Is that just new revelation, or is it a new situation? And uh, I'm going to suggest that it's both. So it's new revelation and a new situation. And so the outlook about death was considerably better. Still not rosy. I mean, people did not look forward to death as a, as, a, as a pleasantry. I mean, it, it does mean that we enter into a phase of existence where we are naked souls. Uh, Paul seems to indicate that there, is, there are some deficiencies that are not remedied until the resurrection. And so there are, there, there, it is still an enemy. Okay? It is still considered an enemy. Uh, it, it does throw us into a situation that God did not intend for humanity to endure uh, with, the, uh, with the original creation. However, uh, it is considerably uh, better uh, for, uh, for New Testament saints in terms of outlook than for Old Testament saints. And so tonight, we want to look at why that is. So we're at the top of page 10, and we are looking at the inhabitants of this place we called Sheol, or Hades. So Sheol is the Hebrew word, Hades is the Greek word, and we suggested that perhaps those terms are best left untranslated. In fact, many of your, tra many of your translations actually do that now. Some have tried to use terms like grave or, uh, or death, but those are actually inadequate definitions, trying to come up with a one-word uh, Synonym is hard for us. Uh, the place of the dead is what the New Living Translation uses, and it's perhaps as close as uh, we, can, we can come to a good English translation. And so it is the place of the dead. This is where souls go uh, when they die. And in the Old Testament, apparently, all souls went there, Old uh, whether righteous, unrighteous, 
And then also we're going to suggest possibly that there are fallen angels here as well. Okay? So the wicked dead, is, there's usually no question on this one. This is the, this is the one aspect of this that there's no, no debate about. The wicked return to Sheol, all the nations who forget God. Let the wicked be silent in Sheol. And then in Revelation, this place, Hades in Greek, gives up the wicked dead for judgment and transfer into the lake of fire. So the wicked dead are in Sheol. There is no, no question about, about that. The question comes when we talk about the righteous dead. Um, we actually find that the righteous are, are expecting to go to this place of the dead as well. Jacob expected to go to join his son Joseph there. David expected to join his infant child there. Hezekiah expected to go there. Job expected to go there. And, you know, this is, this is, a, this is a pretty good listing of saintly people in the Old Testament, people we would anticipate seeing in heaven, and yet they are expecting to go to Sheol. And then also, tantalizingly, a, a prospect here, the word Sheol is not used, but we actually know that certain fallen angels are incarcerated uh, for, for, uh, for, for leaving their first estate, and they are put into a pit called Tartarus in Jude and in 2 Peter. Um, and uh, perhaps it is, it is a shared space uh, with uh, the righteous and the wicked dead, although we don't know. Different words are used. Uh, the terms abusas, abyss, and Tartarus are used rather than Sheol, but it's possible uh, that we're talking about the same place. So the legion of angels that were uh, in, inhabiting a man, uh, were imploring Jesus not to command them to go away into the abyss and requested instead that Jesus allow them to enter into a herd of pigs. He obliges, kind of a strange story, uh, and yet they re recognized that they had some, done something worthy of incarceration and so they beg Jesus not to make that happen, and he obliges. Uh, Jude 6, angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, are kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And the parallel passage in 2 Peter chapter 2 identifies their, their location as Tartarus. Tartarus, okay? So neither of these terms is properly Sheol or Hades, and yet it is a, it is a pit, and so there's some similarities here, and perhaps uh, we can suggest that they are in the same uh, relative location. So the question here, why are some angels incarcerated while others roam free? Now we actually talk about this in the Doctrine of Angels, but it's a question that sometimes comes up in this class. Uh, some suggested, some suggest that this reference to bound angels is simply a reference to all demons, all wicked angels, and that all wicked angels or demons are bound in sin, and so this binding here is metaphorical. Uh, but the incident in Luke chapter 8 seems to suggest uh, 
that angels, particularly wicked angels, can be restricted further than they already are. And so I'm going to assume here that this is the case based on that passage here in Luke chapter 8. Um, and so then we move to the second question, so what, what did these angels do? Okay. A, 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 a historical favorite has, to, is, has been to look at the story here before the flood uh, where the, the, the sons of God came under the daughters of men and uh, they had children and there were Nephilim in the land and uh, Jewish tradition suggests that these are angels who cohabited with human women in order to enjoy the, uh, the ecstasies of that. And the offspring, the product, were these monsters. Um, I'm doubtful of this. Uh, it's a couple of reasons. One, it does not appear that angels have any capacity for marriage or you know, sexual engagement here. At best, we could perhaps have angels that inhabit men in order to do these things. Uh, but angels don't have any physical properties that they can pass off on to offspring uh, in order to have these, these monster children. Um, so my, my best guess is that, that, that something like that is the case. Um, and that's what happened right in Luke chapter 8. What, what, what had these demons done that made them liable to be being cast into the pit? Well, we know that they had inhabited a man, okay? And uh, he was running around, cutting himself, and doing all sorts of strange things. Uh, we don't actually have any sort of statement here that he was engaging in sexual encounters, but there, there do seem to be indications of lewdness uh, that he was engaged in. And so they recognized that they had done something that made them liable to going into this pit. And so that's how I... That's how I how I harmonize that with what Jude says, that they left their first domain. Uh, that is, they wanted to explore what it would be like to inhabit a person. And for this reason, uh, they were uh, liable then uh, to go to the, this pit. At the end of the day, though, we just have very little data to go on. So it's hard to be uh, particularly... Uh, dogmatic on this. Any questions on that? Okay, well let's see if we can't uh, put up a diagram here of what this place Sheol looked like when Old Testament saints died. Well, sometimes this has been called the compartment view of Sheol Hades. Uh, I accept it. Um, and so there seem to be these three compartments. Uh, this place, well, we might call it Upper Sheol, okay? This is the place uh, where the uh, righteous dead are, okay? It is called Paradise. It is called Abraham's Bosom, okay? It is a place of comfort. It is a place of rest, okay? Lazarus died and was carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom where he was comforted. Jesus says to the chief on, thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Interestingly, he doesn't say heaven. He said he'll be here with you in paradise. Uh, so, and uh, then there's the place of the wicked dead. I'm going to put it here. 
because I've called this upper Sheol. Uh, so this is lower Sheol. And so I wanted to put some sort of a, uh, it, obviously these are metaphorical. It doesn't necessarily mean there's some sort of geographic up and down here. Uh, but lower Sheol has to do with the, the, uh, the, the bad part of hell. Okay, And so what is that? It's called uh, lower Sheol in the literature. And it's described as a place of fire and anger that burns to the lowest parts of Sheol. Okay? And so it is a place of, of torment. Remember, uh, Lazarus went and he was, in, he was uh, uh, in Abraham's bosom and was comforted. Where did the rich man go? Well, he is in torment. Okay? And so, so he's, he's, in, a, he's in, a, in a bad spot. Okay? Then, we said there is a great, you know, there's a statement here, there's a great gulf fixed between them, right? In that passage? Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, so a great, great chasm, great gulf fixed between them. And so, even though the rich man asked for Lazarus to come and, and help him out here, was it? Yeah, so, and, uh, but the, the response is no. Now, he's gone to his reward, and there's a great gulf fixed. He's no longer your lackey here. He, he, he's, he's in a better place, and he's going to stay there. Okay? But there's this great gulf fixed, and because of the fact that there are uh, demons that are in an abyss, a pit, this place called Tartarus, there's at least a, perhaps a suggestion that this is where the angels go, so the wicked angels or the demons that leave their first domain. That, again, that's, that is probably the most theoretical of all, uh, but it, it fits the data that we have uh, from the scriptures. Okay, And so this legion of angels didn't want to go to the abyss, uh, there are other angels that are in a in eternal bonds under darkness, waiting for the great the judgment of the great day. And it is interesting to note that in Revelation nine, uh, where the tri tribulation sort of you know aims towards its climax here, uh, what happens? Abaddon, the keeper of the pit, unlocks it, and these strange, hideous creatures emerge and start going all over the earth. And that's when the tribulation gets really, really bad. And it, it appears that they're let out of this place. So they were incarcerated here for, for much of human history, and yet during this tribulation they're released. And that's what's part of the reason uh, why the great and terrible day of the Lord is so terrible. Uh, because uh, the worst of the worst, it's kind of like the storming of the Bastille, you know, the, the worst of the worst somehow got released into society here. Okay. Questions here? So where is this place? Well, we don't have enough data to say with any certainty, but we do know this, created beings, even spirit beings, are not omnipresent. Only God is omnipresent. So they're somewhere. So they're in some location. They're localized. And so it follows that the souls of the dead are in some literal location as well. So it's not just a suspended state or a condition of the mind. Most suggest that we have no idea where it is. 
There are some clues, perhaps, in the scriptures that suggest it could be in the center of the earth. I am not dogmatic. I'm not going to die on this hill. But there are a number of passages that speak in those terms. The earth opened its mouth, and Korah and his followers, and all that belonged to them, went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them. Amos 9 speaks of digging into Sheol. Uh, it is, there's numbers of passages that speak of people descending into this place, and it's described variously as the depths or the lower parts of the earth. Okay? And so some suggest that uh, perhaps souls, I mean, they don't necessarily need to take up a lot of space. They have to take up some space, but I mean, perhaps, you know, that's, that's the question, right? How many angels can fit on the head of a pin, right? Okay, this is, this is actually where, where, where the question actually comes up, right? Where do these souls go and how much space do they occupy? It, it could be a small amount because we do know a legion of angels, right, inhabited a single man. So it's possible that we don't really need a particularly large place. And at least is, it is, I think, conceivable that it could be in the center of the earth. But there's also a fairly robust argument that going down is metaphorical of their demise. You know, you know, we, we talk about something, you're going down. Um, we're not necessarily mean you are literally going down. It, it's, it's metaphorical of the demise of someone. So I don't, I'm, again, I'm not, I'm not in, in, in a position to say with any certainty where this location is, but at least there's some clues, some, uh, some tantalizing uh, comments that perhaps could suggest uh, that it's the center of the earth. Okay? Thoughts, questions? Okay. So, what is the condition of those in this place? And we've already sort of described this as well. Uh, they're uniformly described as conscious. Okay? They recognize, they feel, speak, remember, know, see, hear. The rich man and Lazarus, there's all kinds of sensory terms that are used with those. Uh, the wicked are experiencing God's wrath, so they are in torment. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's not as though they're just sort of suspended. They're actually feeling the weight of divine wrath, not the final judgment, but nonetheless a form of divine wrath. They do seem to receive and understand divine messages, so God can contact them if he wants to. Uh, and uh, in Isaiah, the dead are anticipating the arrival of others. Okay, so uh, they are they're anticipating that, some, that others will come and join them. Which leaves a couple of questions here. What about passages like Psalm 6 and Psalm 115, Isaiah 38, uh, Ecclesiastes 9, which say there's no praise or thanksgiving in Sheol, there's no activity, planning, or knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol. Uh, perhaps everybody's just sort of asleep. It's probably best, I say here, to see these as a reference to the experiences of life. They have no knowledge they have no connection with what's going on on earth. Uh, not that they know absolutely nothing at all, uh, but uh, because we have, to, we have to harmonize that somehow. They know some things, and these passages say they don't know anything, and so how do we harmonize that? Well, they don't know anything with respect to the land of the living. Okay? And I think that is a helpful way of harmonizing those passages here.
Okay, so, so they're not speaking uh, absolutely of man's awareness, but of his knowledge relative to activity in the world of the living. So sometimes we talk about the idea that, you know, they're, everybody's sort of peering into the uh, TV screen, watching, watching what's going on on earth. It doesn't seem, at least in Sheol, that that's the case. And I suspect that there's plenty of things for them to be looking at while they're up there. I, I, don't, I think we, we have this, this morbid idea that we're the center of everything. And, you know, they're, 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 out, they're, they're off enjoying their new existence. And so I don't know that they're just, you know, crowding around trying to figure out what's yeah, going on here. Paradise, how would they want to look back at Earth and all the garbage that's going yeah. on here? You know, I mean, it would be yeah. disheartening. Yeah. Another question here is, do these people have bodies? Okay, we've, we've sort of hinted around this question a couple of times already. So let's, let's see if we can't formally answer that question. There is debate among uh, good men, uh, even among faculty at the DBTS. There's some debate as to uh, whether uh, those who uh, pass have bodies in the, in the interim. Everyone has to agree that they don't have their resurrection bodies, that is, that is something that's reserved uh, for the end. But the question is, could they perhaps have some sort of temporary uh, body uh, that is assigned to them in order for them to function as humans? So let's, let's see a look at the options here. Among the Greeks, especially those who follow Platonic thought, it was popular to regard the body as restrictive, a taste, distasteful thing, the prison house of the soul. And so they looked forward with anticipation to the liberation of the soul from the shackles of physicality, corporeality. But Paul clearly had a different understanding of his body. He does not look forward to the loss of his body. As, as much as our bodies are wasting away most of us really you know, do a lot to keep a hold of them, right? Uh, because that's what's normal for humanity, and it will be what is normal in eternity. Uh, and so we want to keep our bodies around. That seems to be uh, the norm. Uh, Paul does not look forward to the loss of bodily existence as, as, as completely a good thing. Death is still the enemy, right? He chooses descriptors like soul nakedness, and an unclothed existence. So I think it's clear that the Platonic idea is incorrect. In Scripture, uh, having a body is a good thing that renders a human complete, and so that is why we, look, we long for uh, the resurrection body. Now the fact that this fact demands corporality immediately at death is not as certain, however. Some argue from the philosophical point above, and citing texts in which individuals have perceptions, pain, thirst, right, the rich man, speech, they speak to each other, how can they speak if they don't have lips and tongues? Even body start parts, such as tongues and fingers, argue that the dead do in fact have bodies. Further, whenever we see the Old Testament dead reappear later in Scripture, they have a visible form. Doesn't happen very often, but a couple of times. On the other hand, Paul speaks about becoming clothed with a new body, not at death, but at the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 5, 
which is connected with the second coming of Christ. When he comes, we shall be like him. We also find that the resurrection bodies are in some sense connected to the original bodies of the dead. Now, the graves open and refurbished bodies emerge to unite with a waiting but presumably disembodied soul, right? The rapture, right? Okay, the, uh, the, 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 the bodies emerge and there's some sort of connection of what was the original material with the new body that we have. Now there's a lot of debate as to what, what exactly that is. Um, maybe it's just more of a resemblance to what we once were uh, rather than actually you know, physical pieces of our body. Uh, but uh, there does seem to be some connection with our previous body and our eschatological body, our, our eternal body that we get at the resurrection. Um, yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit later here. Okay. So it, it seems like if they got an intermediate body, that creates something of a conundrum here. So if they have an intermediate body and this mat physical material comes and you know, merges with what's there, it's, you, you've got two bodies that are sort of merged into one. That's, that's perhaps the difficulty, greatest difficulty of the, uh, the intermediate body view is that what, how, what happens to the intermediate body when you get your resurrection body? And it is a complication. I don't know that it's something that is completely, you know, something that we can, simply can't do anything about, uh, but uh, it does seem to be a problem at least, okay? And so while good men differ, it seems easier to defend the absence of an intermediate body. That a human is incomplete without a body is clearly true. The Bible says so. But it does not follow that we necessarily must have bodies in every stage of our existence. Furthermore, the fact that dead see, hear, speak, and such is, does not necessarily demand the existence of the body. Other incorporeal beings, such as God and angels, have these sensory functions too, even though they don't have bodies either. So I don't know that that's necessarily a strong argument uh, that, uh, that uh, the, the, the inter this intermediate state has to be one in which we have a body. Questions on that? Yeah, go ahead. Well, I just think, Yeah, cer certainly God's capable of doing either. The question is, which is he doing? I guess is the, is the, is the question. I think the, argue, the, the reason, is if I recall from, Dr. McCune believes, believed that you could you get a body immediately at death, an intermediate body. It seems like it, it, as much as anything, he was very concerned about platonic dualism that was part of new orthodoxy. I mean that was and that was all the rage when he was going through school and uh, and and early in his ministry. And I think that's probably as much as anything that really turned the Grace Brethren um, to the idea of an intermediate body. Is that any, kind of an example, maybe, of an overreaction against liberalism? Perhaps, perhaps, yes, perhaps. Back with the body, correct? 
Apparently, yeah, because their bodies are, they, you know, they lay there in the street, right? So, so yeah, I mean, they get a body. Uh, and, and actually, part of the debate on the, on the two witnesses, some, some suggest for that reason that this is, that this is uh, Enoch and Elijah, who never lost their bodies, right? So, and it's one of the reasons why those two names are sometimes given as, as, as the... Uh, identity of the two witnesses, although we really have no idea, but it's at least a tantalizing possibility. Right. What about um, the angel of the Lord or the pre-incarnate Christ? Yeah. That body. Right. Yeah, and, and it does seem that even angels can do that too, right? Some angels do take on physical forms whether that's human, sometimes it's bugs and birds and scorpions and all kinds of weird things too. So it 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 does seem like it is possible for either for them to assume these forms or for God to provide temporarily some sort of a form. Uh, but again, again, this is one of those, these areas that or we have a lot of these in eschatology where we look at this and say, I I, I don't know if I have all the answers. Um, but we're, we're trying to piece together what data we do have. Yeah, I'm thinking, like, um, back when um, Lot takes the angels that were coming and he brought them into the house, they had some kind of body. Right. And, yeah, just and on the Mount Trance. Yeah. I can't. They're talking, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Too much to think about. Yeah, there's a lot. Get back to the lesson. <laughs> So the, uh, the, the wicked dead are described as being in torment, experiencing God's wrath. They have no rest. Okay? So it's a, it's a restless existence. But the righteous were in a state of rest and comfort. Lazarus was comforted where he was. When the righteous man perishes, he is taken away from evil and enters into peace. Okay? So the righteous dead, even though they are in this location here, are experiencing pleasure, or at least relief uh, from the uh, troubles of life. Samuel, when he's called back by the witch of Endor, says when he comes out, why have you disturbed my rest? So he's apparently enjoying himself there, sitting on a recliner or something, but he was resting. So just, you know, we have the two compartments, and this is a pleasant place. This is an unpleasant place. So is that where they are now? Okay, go, go ahead. Your question, John. Oh, yeah, I was just going to ask, um, was, would Jesus' audience have been already familiar with this idea? And if so, where is Yes, this this is part of this is a lot of a part of a lot of Jewish lore, if I can put it that way. It's it these are Jewish traditions already. Now there's a lot of Jewish traditions, some of which Jesus is not too keen on, uh, but but uh, as you as you look at this this is all described in some detail in some of the intertestamental literature. Okay, so how do you get out of this place? Well, there is no hope of deliverance for the wicked dead. 
between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed. No one can cross over from your side to our side. Jesus comes in 1 Peter 3 and preaches to the disobedient spirits, probably not to give them a second chance, but rather to seal their doom. We'll, we'll pick this up later. Okay, And so the conclusion is that death and hell are brought to the place of judgment and simply transferred to their permanent abode in the lake of fire. So there is no hope of deliverance for, for the wicked death, de dead except to a place even worse. But for the righteous, there was hope of deliverance. The statement here that David makes in Psalm 16.10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Of course, Acts 2 says that this is not a statement strictly about David, um, but rather about David's Lord, uh, the Messiah, who is going to die and, and, uh, and, and not rot, uh, but actually be, be brought, uh, brought to, uh, out of this place. And uh, I'm inclined to look at Psalm 1610 and say that there's actually some hope even here for David, even though David recognizes that he's not speaking merely of himself. I think there is a sense in which he, he ties his own fate to the fate of the one who does not, who, who escapes Sheol. So, uh, so he, he recognizes there's going to be an escape for him as well. Psalm 49, God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. Hosea 13, I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. So even though this is, again, this is somewhat of a gloomy place, you get these sort of dark images here. It's a comfortable place, but it's a darker place, and there is hope of deliverance from this place. It's a place that you needed to be delivered from, okay? And apparently this does, in fact, occur. Okay? So, how did this happen? Well, in the, the intermediate state, since the resurrection of Christ, seems to, have, seems to have been fundamentally altered. So when Christ died, he went to this place and fundamentally altered its structure. So we know that Christ here went to this place. Uh, he was not abandoned to Hades. Uh, he was not abandoned to Sheol, which implies what? That he went there, but he didn't stay there. Luke 23, 43, Jesus promised the thief that they would be together in paradise on that very day. Okay, and so they went to the same place. It's interesting that he doesn't say we're going to go to heaven. We might expect that, but no, he says we're going to go to this place called paradise. Romans 10, who will descend to the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead? Okay, so, and again, this is a, you know, the, the, sort of the excitement builds here. How, how, how is the story going to end? And, of course, we know the story, that God is going to, with his own divine power, restore Jesus from this place of the dead. Ephesians 4, he descended into the lower parts of the earth, uh, some suggest that that is simply a reference to his incarnation. He went down to earth. Uh, but the fact that these, this term lower parts is used, is it's, it gives us a lot of connections here to the lower parts of the earth, uh, which, are, is, which is a descriptor we saw earlier of this place uh, called Sheol. Okay? Now some suggest he did not go into this place. 
Um, but uh, there, are, uh, there are others, though, who suggest that he did. But I think uh, the preponderance of, of evidence from these passages isn't that he, in fact, did go to this place. Not to suffer, uh, but actually, as we're going to see, to, 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 to sort of confirm the doom of the unrighteous dead. And then also, as we're going to see here, to liberate uh, those who are in upper Sheol. So these are the purposes of this death. So he didn't go to hell to complete his suffering. When he, when he said, it is finished, this signaled not merely the dead, that end of his life, but the completion of his work. His atoning suffering death is done. And his presence in paradise uh, was that seems to suggest that his purpose is not to suffer. He seems to go to the pleasant side. Okay? So not to suffer, uh, but actually to... Uh, uh, to, to primarily be on this side. Now, he does seem to go to this place as well and preach to those in prison in a sermon of judgment, if I can, an announcement that any hope that you had of getting out of this place is, is dashed now. Okay? Uh, but he didn't go there to suffer, but merely to condemn. And then here, to bring deliverance to Old Testament saints, then in paradise, and take them to be with God. And we have several texts that seem to suggest this. The gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are the dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Ephesians 4.8, He ascended up on high, led captive a host of captives, and gave gifts to men. These texts seem to suggest that when Christ died, he made the final expiation for sin, rendering it possible for the righteous dead who died without having received the promise, remember they died before Christ came, to become the spirits of righteous men made perfect, as Hebrews 12 describes them. So in the summary words of Hebrews 9, since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called have been freed to receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So they're, they're here sort of waiting, anticipating that the deed would be done. Christ's atonement is completed, and now they are able uh, to escape this place uh, and receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. Okay? There is a, there is a, a, a strange verse pair of verses here in Matthew 27 that perhaps gives us a window into this. Remember when Jesus had cried out again with a loud voice, he gave up his spirit, and at that moment, tombs broke open, and the bodies of many holy men who had previously died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Okay? So, associated with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is this rather wholesale resurrection of people who had previously died. Now, there's no explanation given. It doesn't explain why this happened. It doesn't explain the details of what happened, but at least the possibility is here that we're actually seeing this transition take place. Jesus emerges from the grave, conquering death, and a whole slew of people that are there with him are, are released. And they accompany him then 
uh, to heaven uh, later on. I mean, there's still a lot of questions here. I mean, was it all of them that suddenly appeared here? It seems like an awfully large number of people that would have been. Uh, so perhaps it's just a representative number. It's hard to say, uh, but at least perhaps gives us a, a yeah, perhaps a, a tantalizing glimpse into uh, this transition that takes place. Okay? And then he confirms then the doom of sinners making proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were once disobedient. Again, not a second chance, uh, but rather uh, a message of doom. Okay? Questions on that? On, on your Ephesians 8 there, uh, the thing Four, eight, is that yeah. that's under, the, under 2, it says uh, brought deliverance to Old Testament saints. But in that wording there, and maybe there's some difference of the translation of the Greek here, he sends it on high, led captive, a host of captives. In other yeah. words, it, it's that, that seems to say that he's not leading them to freedom. He's leading them captive. Can yeah. Captive have, yeah, there's, have different meanings? Yeah, there's a lot of debate over that, and it's a good question. Um, some would suggest here that they are now willing captives of Jesus Christ, and so they're, they're happily going with him. Also, they're, they're perhaps we have, perhaps the image that we should have is that of, you know, opening up a prisoner of war camp, Okay. You know, at the, at the end of the war, you know, you, you, liberate, you liberate the POW camps. And so he leads out the captives. And so they're, they're cheering because we're free. We got, we're, we're, we're no longer incarcerated. Okay. And, so, and so perhaps that's the picture that we should have in our mind. Okay. So they're, cap they're held captive by death here in this place. And now they're freed. And so these captives of death are actually liberated from this, this gloomy place of Sheol and, and liberated to go to a better place. Okay. And again, the body they do that in? Uh, well, I mean, the, the, these folks in Matthew 27, it's hard to know. Maybe they, maybe they got assigned bodies. It's hard to know. I don't, I don't know if we have enough here to make any sort of case that everybody who dies has a body. Correct. But, that, but that's different from what you're talking about. Yes, yeah, so the Old Testament saint would have had a debt, and that's our next point, right? So our next, our next point is, so what's different now? We no longer go here. We go immediately. We don't, we don't have to take this step down. Uh, we go immediately up, as it, as it were, here. So the results of Christ's visit to Sheol Hades. Paradise is now the third heaven. Uh, Paul is caught up into the third heaven, and now he calls that paradise. Okay, so this, this place called paradise, actually the, in, in, in the Old Testament, this term paradise is usually used of the Garden of Eden. The, the, the huge number of times this term paradise is used in the Old Testament has reference to the Garden of Eden. So it, 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 is, it is the place where God connects with people, as it were. Okay? Um, and so it, it seems that this, this place of paradise is now migrates up into heaven. We go to the abode of God. Well, yeah, kind of. Um, yeah. 
Um, I mean, it's not the same thing because I, I, I think we're, we're we almost we have almost have to fundamentally re reorganize everything with the Roman Catholic view. But yes, you're, there is this this idea that there is a place of torment where you are purged of any sins for which you failed to con yeah, receive forgiveness. Would they use this as a defense? Probably yes, some degree. I don't. I don't think they do. Um, I, okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he he justified that by saying um, that our God is a fire. He's a he's a consuming fire, and so in order to get him pure when you're dying and then you're in purgatory, that's the consuming fire that is consuming or it's burning purging, yeah, sin. burning away your sin, right? Temporarily, but then after you're cleansed, then you're then you're out. So, so the quite, uh, for those of you in internet land, um, um, the suggestion is here that this, they would not have used some of this old kinds of imagery here, uh, but rather God's consuming fire would rather swiftly, if, if I'm hearing you correctly, uh, purge. It depends on how many sins Okay, it depends. Okay. Right, and how many, how many people on the outside are praying for you and such. Yeah. Thank you, sister. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've, we've got our, our Roman Catholic expert here in the front. So. <laughs> so we know that no t New Testament saint now will ever go to this place. The gates of hell will not overcome church saints. And I, I, know, I, know, I know there's this, this idea out there you know, the gates of hell will not prevail. Is somehow that we're storming the gates of hell. In fact, I was, I was driving from Pennsylvania just yesterday, and I was poking along in the, in the radio trying to find something to keep me awake. And there was, there was a song being sung about, we're going to storm the gates of hell. And I was like, no, no, no. Why would we want to storm the gates of hell? <laughs> I kind of want to leave it alone, you know. So the, the, the idea here is the gates of hell will never close on us. So, so church saints are never going to be incarcerated in this place. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So it, they will never close on us is, is the idea here. Okay. And so upon death, believers go immediately to be with God in the New Testament order. Stephen looked up into heaven, asked Jesus to receive him up. Philippians 1, I desire to, be, to depart and to be with Christ, which is better. 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body now is to be at home with the Lord. And so the present state of the deceased righteous man goes immediately to be with God. But Shaol Hades is largely unchained, unchanged for the wicked, uh, in fact, if anything, it got a little bit worse because they are given notice that any sort of hope that they were harboring, that they might possibly get out, is dashed. Okay, so it actually perhaps gets worse for them. Okay? So any final questions here about death and, uh, and the, uh, the state of those who go there? Okay, we've got about, oh yeah, question. This question after the flood. Uh-huh. It must have been really crowded in one place or the other. 
there any people that got wiped out in the flood uh, that got to the higher level? Yeah, so the question is, is anybody, did anyone who died in the flood make it to Upper Sheol? And I would say I'm fairly doubtful. Um, and perhaps, you know, perhaps there are some who believed at the uh, 11th hour after the, after the doors closed on the uh, ark, but we don't really have much indication that that would have been the case. I'm not going to say no, but... I'm not I'm certainly going to say yes either. Probably the ones that uh, were preached to that rejected it didn't make it, but you know, uh, Noah couldn't reach the whole world at that time. Yeah. Uh, so I'm sure that for 125 years he spread the word, and they had that chance, and they rejected that. So I would say they probably went to the lower part, but to those that... Uh, well, I guess the, 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 the commentary that we get in, in Genesis 6 is that all the, thought, all the imaginations of the thoughts of their heart were only evil continually. Okay. So the idea that there were any righteous people on earth when the flood started seems pretty low. Yeah. I, I'm not going to say that no one might not have repented the 11th hour, but uh, we have no indication that that happened. There's no danger of overcrowding at the upper... <laughs> <laughs> Apparently not. Apparently not. Okay, well, we've got 15 minutes to start here on our next section. We're, we're taking the... Uh, we're moving from individual eschatology now to global eschatology, if I can. And the, uh, so now we're looking at a calendar here, uh, and we're asking the question, what's next? Okay, so what's next for the world uh, in the prophetic calendar that God gives us uh, in his word? And the next event that we're anticipating is the second coming of Christ. Um, in the Old Testament, there are four principal, three di principal divisions of the Bible that fall upon, uh, that line up with the coming of Christ. He's coming. In the Old Testament, he has come. In the Gospels, he's coming again. That's the balance of the New Testament. So it does seem like a very prominent theme in the Scripture. Uh, I think sometimes, I think sometimes, I think it's it's hard it's hard to criticize this to to uh, to to fixate on the on the cross, uh, but we should recognize that you know that while that was a tremendous moment for Christ and for us. Uh, there is a climax to history that is just as grand, and we shouldn't imagine that uh, just because that has happened, it's, you know, it's all, you know, the, the climax has occurred, and so there's, there's really just sort of mop-up at the end. That doesn't seem to be the case. The coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, seems to be the apex, the climax. This is when he is revealed not just to be the suffering savior, but the triumphant king. And uh, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't look at that and say, it's like, yeah, that's the appendix or the, uh, the epilogue here. No, it's, it's part of the story, and it's, it's, it is a grand part of the story, and, and we shouldn't give up on that. Yeah, it, it, I know there's, you know, somebody, somebody made a joke last week about pan-millennialists, right? You know, we don't know what's, what, what's going to happen with the millennium, but it's all going to pan out. And, uh, and while, while it's good for a chuckle, um, 
the fact is that the scriptures are just filled with data on prophecy. A third of the Bible is given over to future prophecy. And I don't think God intended us for just to simply ignore those sections or just say, meh, it'll all pan out in the end. He, he anticipates that we will dive into them and delve into them and, and discover what God has to say about the end times. So uh, yeah, I know, you know sometimes it's been overdone. I get it. There's a lot of speculation that's gone on over the years. At the same time, I think we're, we're doing a pendulum swing if we just sort of dismiss it as just sort of, okay, everything will just work out. Uh, there's a lot, lot of data here uh, to, uh, for us to just conclude in that way. So the Old Testament makes many clear prophecies about the coming of Christ, but in the Old Testament, we don't necessarily see it divided into two comings. The first coming as a suffering servant, the second coming as the triumphant king. Um, but there does seem to be a conflict in the descriptions of this coming. Sometimes he's a lowly Messiah, he's a suffering servant, he's a smitten shepherd, he's a cut-off Messiah who is destitute, and yet he's also described as a mighty God, a prince with a limitless kingdom. Unto him will be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and men of every language will serve him. His dominion will be an everlasting one, which will not pass away, and his kingdom will not be destroyed. And so we get, we get this, mixed, this mixed signal, perhaps, in the Old Testament, uh, where we have these dire predictions about the, the first coming, of the coming of Christ, and then some triumphant descriptors of the coming of Christ. And so we sort of, uh, we, we, there's a, it's a problem of interpretation. And we know that the prophets, First Peter says, who prophesied of the grace that would come, made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Okay? So the Old Testament saints didn't, didn't quite put it together. Okay? Uh, the writers of Scripture had this apparent conflict in their thinking because they were writing apparently contradictory uh, reports about what Christ was going to do when he came. Okay? Um, and uh, we find this particularly in Daniel chapter 12, right? The very end of Daniel 12, uh, Daniel, after he's written it all down, he's put a lot of detail into it. He says, when are these things going to be? Okay. Give, 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 me, some, give me a timetable. I, 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 I know what I wrote. I understand what I wrote. But there's some pieces missing. Fill them in here, please, for me. And what does God say? Close the book. That's all you got. Okay. And so this is, this is uh, what Peter is describing when he said they, they learn, yearn to look into the times and the details about this coming of Christ, but they didn't get them all. Okay? Um, but we actually know now, because he came, left, and is coming again, that the, uh, the, the descriptors in the Old Testament actually had a, had a twofold emphasis here. Uh, so this, these notes will defend a pre-tribulational coming of Christ uh, to remove his church to heaven, 
a rapture that will be fulfilled, followed by a tribulation and a second coming of Christ to establish his glorious millennial kingdom. So he came the first time to suffer, and he, he wished that his, that his disciples would have recognized this, but uh, they didn't seem to get it. Um, and so he, he basically has to drop it on them. You know, I'm not going to be king now. Okay. You know, they're, they're going towards Jerusalem, and they thought he would, the kingdom was about to appear immediately. He said, no. Tells them a parable about the fact that he's going to go away to receive the kingdom. And so uh, we are made perfectly aware at this time uh, that this coming of Christ, just described in the Old Testament, is going to have two phases. There's going to be a first advent that's already taken place 2,000 years ago, and a second advent that is yet future. Okay, and so we're going to so we're going to take a look here at this uh, this uh, second coming in two phases. And so we're going to start here with the first of these phases, the rapture of the church. I think we can give just a little bit of an intro before we, give, before we close off here. Uh, we're not going to give a defense here tonight, um, but at least uh, perhaps uh, some introductory material. The term rapture doesn't appear in Scripture. It's actually derived from the Latin term rapto, uh, which is used in the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible. Uh, to translate the catching up of the church in 1 Timothy 4.17. Okay? We who are alive and remain shall be rapto. We will be raptured. And so that's where the term comes from, from the Latin. Okay? So this idea of a sudden removal on earth to a separate sphere of existence appears several times in the New Testament. I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am you will be also. This is a very important verse because it's not you're going to come up and escort me to back to the earth, but rather I have gone away to another place and I will invite you back to that same place where I am preparing uh, you know, comfortable arrangements for you. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, we are to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 4, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. Uh, 2 Timothy 2 is written with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Okay, and so there's, there's this idea that at the end of time, it's not simply that Christ is going to come here and immediately establish his kingdom, but rather there's this idea that we are going to go with him and be with him for a while. Okay, seven years precisely. Okay. Now, in the history of the church, the majority of the church has denied the idea of a rapture of the church. Okay. Uh, it, is, it, is, it is actually a minority position uh, that I am going to be defending here. It always makes me a little bit nervous uh, when, I, when I disagree with the majority of the church. But uh, we recognize that that happens sometimes. You know, Roman Catholicism, right? They were in the ascendancy for a thousand years, and they were quite wrong about many things that were discovered during the Reformation period. So it's, it's, it's not as though we can never uh, disagree with the 
with the weight of church history, uh, but we should do so cautiously. Okay? Now, some have suggested that this was a new idea that was created in the 1820s by some sensationalists. Uh, and there's some num names here that you might have heard of. And then Darby sort of cleaned it up and gave it a little bit of a uh, respectability. But that's, that's, uh, but that's not quite right. Uh, the idea of a rapture separate from the second coming was held widely in the church until A.D. 325, the early part of the church. And intermittently thereafter in the history of the church, uh, most of the early church fathers viewed their own sufferings as part of the tribulation, so they didn't really have a pre-tribulational rapture, more of a mid-tribulational rapture. They thought themselves to be going through the tribulation, but they were anticipating escaping the great and terrible portion of it. And so, uh, they, uh, so probably more of a pre-wrath or mid-tribulational kind of a thing. Um, and so uh, even, even those who are not you know, fans of the rapture have admitted, like uh, Millard Erickson, that the early church fathers planted the seeds which the doctrine of the pre-trib rapture would be developed and suggests that the premillennialism of the, of the church's first centuries may have included belief in a pre-tribulational rapture, which is quite, a, quite, a, quite an admission. Um, and it's, it's, he's not liked for that, but he recognizes that it's almost certain that the, the idea of a pre-tribulational rapture was a part of the first three centuries of the church. Okay? Now, though the post-tribulational uh, rapture has probably been more acceptable within the life of the church. Uh, Pre-tribulationalism can be traced back at least as far as several early Baptist leaders, Morgan Edwards, John Gill, and a great, a, a great number of others. And so while the witness of the whole church should never be taken lightly, uh, taking a minority position always makes me swallow a little bit hard, history isn't our final court of appeal, Bible is. And so we're going to take a look and see what the scriptures have to say uh, starting next week uh, to see if we can't make a good case then here uh, for this pre-tribulational rapture. Okay, so that's what we'll start with uh, next Wednesday, Lord willing. Okay? Yes? Uh, going back to 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, that phrase right at the end, who rescues us from the wrath to come. I had been uh, taught uh, by one that, uh, that that's a reference not only to uh, the final uh, judgment of the wicked, but uh, the wrath to come also include the great tribu tribulation. Yeah. So yeah, we're gonna we're gonna look at all those passages next, starting next week. So we'll we'll unpack every one of these key passages next time. Yep. Okay. We'll see you next week, Lord willing. <laughs>